What's up, everybody? Welcome to another edition of the Surf and Sales podcast. I am joined today, as always, by my co-host and good friend, Richard Harris. And we welcome major account executive at Displayer, Alexine Mudawar. And uh, looking forward to talking with her today. Alexine, thanks for uh, joining the show. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited. There was not much option after I got a friendly, threatening, axe-throwing video with you and a bridesmaid's dress. I figured that was my cue that it was time to have you on the show. Perfect. It worked. Yeah, it worked. It worked. <laughs> we are brought to you today and uh, every day during September by our sponsors. And we're really grateful to have Gong.io, Conversational Intelligence, and Lead411, B2B Marketing and Sales Intelligence Contact Database. Lead411 and Gong, thank you for your support. And hopefully everybody gets a chance to, uh, to check them out. So, Alexine, you are in an interesting position right now. Uh, you've gone back to a full cycle sales role, I believe, and you're in a relatively new gig. So give everybody some context about, you know, what your role is right now, what kind of sale it is and all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So I am uh, just in my first quarter with a new role at Displayer, this major account executive role. So um, you're exactly right. It's full, full cycle. So I'm starting from, you know, cradle to grave. Um, it's mostly selling to market research companies and it's a market research software. Um, but it's been really exciting so far. I mean, it was definitely interesting transitioning during a pandemic. So that's kind of a different topic. But, uh, but it's been great so far. I've been really happy. Um, you know, the team's been super welcoming and um, it's just really fun. It's kind of a mix uh, of different types of deals. So I'm working some that are more transactional. I have some that are more like relationship based that are more enterprise focused. I have deals that are like fortune 100 type of companies and then I have some mom and pop shops. So it's kind of a mix right now and I'm really liking it. Now you have been a very faithful member of the Thursday night sales community in our show. And, and I'm sure it's no surprise to anybody out there, but Amy and I love full cycle sales reps and we've been talking recently about whether that's going to come back into fashion you're in one of those roles now what is it like what what is the advantages in your mind and what are you enjoying with it now yeah so i mean i'll preface by saying i'm kind of like a sales freak in the fact that i enjoy prospecting there's something really exciting for me the hunt has always been the most exciting part of the sales cycle so I love scheduling a meeting. I almost get more satisfaction from actually scheduling a meeting from closing a deal. So I think that's part of my DNA. So I think the main difference is, you know, a lot of other companies, you have these AEs that are kind of taking things from the SDR who scheduled them or they've come inbound and then they're just running it from demo forward. Whereas I'm starting at the beginning of that. So I'm doing all that initial outreach. Um, my goal is to schedule, you know, at this point, one demo a day until I have a really full pipeline which I've basically been doing for over a month now. So it's been great, but it's definitely different. I think you have like, and we've talked about this, Scott, cause I geek out on this topic too, but I think you have like two different uh, types of salespeople right now. And I think the future is gonna move back towards this full cycle sales rep. And that's what I was really seeing when I was interviewing is companies are not looking for, you know, these closers only reps. They're looking for people that can prospect. 
So I think it's a little bit different. I mean, if you're not comfortable prospecting or you've never had to before, I think for right now would be a really good time to get comfortable because I think that's going to be what this looks like a few years down the road. It's really interesting because I, I have a different opinion, but I want to, before I go into that, I want to understand how do you balance it, right? Like part of it, I think, is you mentally accepted the fact that this is what it is, right? Mm -hmm. And I think even if it does move in that world, you're still going to have that in that direction. You're still going to have eight years where like, I hate this, right? Um, which maybe you still do. But how do you balance that? Like that is not an easy thing to do, yeah. in my opinion, right? Or, or have we all just gotten lazy? Like in, in all fairness, your second point, I think very much so. Um, I think we all got accustomed. You know, the SDR model didn't really kick in until like three to four years. I mean, I'm in Chicago, so we're like a lagging market, I think. But like three to four years ago was when the SDR model really kicked in. So my first sales role was full cycle sales. And I was also doing account management. I was running my own demos. So I grew up without in sales without the luxury of really having one of those teams. So I think it's just a little bit different of a start. But I think that, um, oh, wait, go ahead. Like, do you, every day I'm prospecting from these times to these times, mm -hmm. every week I'm doing it. Like, how have you done that? And it could, I also understand it could be in relation to your sales cycle, you know, a quarterly sales cycle is different mm -hmm. than a monthly sales cycle, right? But I'm, try, I'm trying to give people tactics of, okay, if I've got to start doing this, here's a good example of how you, um, compartmentalize these things. Yeah, absolutely. So a hundred percent it's time blocking and time management. Morgan Ingram posted, uh, like a copy of his calendar recently, and I actually have been meaning to do the same thing. Um, so I owe that to the world in the next couple of weeks here, but really it's just these really regimented time blocks. And I got to a point probably like two years ago where whatever's on my calendar, I religiously stick to, because before that I would just add stuff to my calendar and move it around all the time and it would drive me nuts. So now I have like prospecting times built in. Uh, for me, Tuesdays are my biggest prospecting day. And I, I think I was talking to Kevin Dorsey about this, but I don't know like if there's actual data behind it, but I schedule more meetings on Tuesdays I have for my entire sales career. So I think some of it's psychological, but that's a day that I try to avoid having like client meetings. I try to avoid booking demos that day. I really try to get, if I have like one-on-ones, I don't want them on that day. Like it's just, that's my day that I've always done a lot of prospecting. And then outside of that, I just try to save at least an hour and a half to two hours a day, wherever it be sprinkled in. Like sometimes it's at 30 minutes when I have it. Sometimes it's an hour and a half if I have that chunk. And then I'm just sprinkling and prospecting every single day, because I think for me, I've been focused on that one demo a day scheduled. So what is, so breaking it down even further, yeah. Tuesdays, is it all email one Tuesday, all phone? Um, are you using a, a outreach or a sales loft or a vanilla mm -hmm. soft? Like, again, just trying to break it down so people can understand it and walk away with, oh, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. That. So we, so this is where I get into, I'm, I'm, I don't think my method will work for other people necessarily, but it works for me. So I, we do have outreach. I use it for my calls but I do not use um, sequences or any type of automation. I work out of tasks in Salesforce, so I keep open tasks. Um, and then I work down a task list every single day, which I realize is maybe not as quick, but for me, I can still get through like 50 plus touches a day. So it works for me, but my leading choice would be to go via phone. So I'll start with phones always. Um, that's where I feel the most comfortable. Email is actually my least preferred method of outreach. It's where I feel 
like I get the least amount of meetings. Um, and social is kind of in the middle for me. So social I'm continuing to work on and try and we have a different market here because market researchers aren't, you know, uh, I'm still trying to understand if they're on social and what they will interact with. So it's a little bit different, but phones are usually what I'm leading with. So I'll usually try to do say I have three hours blocked, I would say I use like an hour and a half of that time just for phones. And I'm just blitzing through. I have everything super organized in Salesforce. So if you looked at one of my open tasks, the subject will say like, um, you know, recently downloaded whatever marketing content or like whatever um, reminder, or if I've seen on their website that they use one of our competitors, I'll put the competitor name in my subject line just so when I'm calling it reminds me. And then inside of my task, it's super like, I mean, they're really meaty, but it has a lot. It'll say like, you know, all the dates of my last outreach, left voicemail, emailed, um, left voicemail, sent LinkedIn message, uh, bumped email. Um, sometimes I even write what type of, like for instance, if I sent an email re related to one of our products, then I'll write which email. So then I know the next email I send is not related to that, but I keep it all in that task and it just helps me kind of keep organized and move. So have good data is your organization giving you great phone numbers and stuff like that or do you have to go hunt those down too um yeah we we do have like as I, I would say we have a decent amount of information it's not perfect yet and we are still like pretty early on like our sales team is less i think at like 10 people now so we're still at the beginning stages so it's not it's definitely not perfect so i still have to do some like gatekeeper and like loop around sometimes so that's definitely yeah. fixed in so Again, I'm just trying to really dive in on this stuff because you're very yeah. good at it. And I think people like to hear these stories. So on Tuesdays, are you researching and finding stuff? Or is it like, no, you know, like Monday night, you know, for an hour, I go look and get the phone numbers of new prospects. Like, how are you getting to the point so that Tuesday you're just banging it out mm -hmm. as opposed to doing the effort? And I'm asking because as a full cycle rep, this is where it gets harder. Yes. Right? At least I think that's where it gets harder. Yeah, I think admin tasks are the most uh, like mundane part. Like I would rather cold call all day than have to do like an hour of, of admin stuff. So you're 100% right. Um, typically what I'll do is try to block that. What I used to do is try to do both at once. And so I'd like cold call and then try to, and I still do that sometimes, like say I don't have a ton of information and I'm reaching out to XYZ company, I'll still try to map the org on that call and do as much as I can and then log that in the, the notes of that task. So I just have it there. Um, but yeah, I definitely have to like book out specific sections of time to actually map out organizations. One other trick that I do, um, Again, I think it's just a level of comfort with calling for me. That's the one part of the job that hasn't changed for me company to company. So um, one thing I do a lot of times is I'll just pull up their LinkedIn profile while I'm calling. And then I figure out what little trigger points I'm gonna use in the conversation. And then I just call. So I, it's not for everyone. And I know people are uncomfortable doing that. Um, and I know some people do a lot more research, but for me, I, I, do, a, I do do a lot of research just on the phone and starting to have conversations, so. Scott, jump in. What makes you think the AE role is going to move to prospecting back into full cycle? And in the S, I don't know if you think the SDRs are going away or not going away, but what makes you believe that? I think based on this last bout of interviewing, I mean, that was like table stakes for the first time. And if I was thinking back to interviews like you know, two years ago or whatever, those weren't, that wasn't like a big topic of conversation. I was kind of proactively bringing up prospecting and all those conversations. 
this time, I mean, that was like a non-negotiable and companies were saying like, we're looking for hunters. Are you comfortable doing X number of prospecting touches a day? And that's something I haven't heard since like six plus years ago. So it was interesting to me. Um, and I think we're also starting, I was starting to see questions about like cold deals. Like people didn't want to hear about your marketing lead that came, you know, as a, a demo request and how you closed it after they had already done like extensive research on your company. They were like, what's a deal that you cold source, cradle to grave, walk us through it. And I think the people that have actually worked those types of deals, it's very easy to pull those examples out of their hat. Whereas other people, it's like, well, well, I found the lead or the lead came to me and then I kind of like did some research, you know, and you can tell really quickly, like, did they or didn't they do cold research? So I think just based on the market um, recently, that's kind of my prediction. And also I think like, um, you know, Scott, Amy, we talk about this all the time on Thursday night sales. Like a lot of, there are a lot of VPs of sales and sales leaders that are on those calls and they are constantly talking about prospecting. And so I really think it's just the way of, how things are headed. I think as AEs, we've had a lot of luxury the last few years and you could be lazy. And I think that in some ways we took advantage of that a little bit. And we had SDRs tee up all our meetings for us and we were just kind of waiting for, you know, sometimes people were waiting for meetings. Whereas I just think it's not, now that the market has tightened up and gotten more competitive, I think it's just not something we're going to continue to be able to do. Yeah. I'm in the same camp as you know, and I find this whole conversation fascinating to see how just to see how it's going to play out i know richard and i come from a world where there was no such thing as sdrs ever so there's 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 <laughs> got to be a part of you richard that you know wants wants sales reps to go back to doing everything a little part of you at least the, if the data can support it this is this is where i think that see i think it's the opposite i think the sdr role is going to become more important coming out of COVID. Um, now, granted, I haven't had to interview, so I don't know what the market looks like. But here's my thought. If I've had to downsize, right, and now I only have a handful of sales reps, why would I pay to go get full cycle sales reps where I already know it's going to cost a ton more than mm -hmm. to have SDRs? So, if I, you know, like, and, and not to tell you, you know, look, you're, you're clearly at the top of your game at Displayer, right? But if I've got 10 reps, there's a ranking of one to 10. Right. Mm -hmm. And nine and 10 should be scared shitless because yeah. I could replace nine and 10 and go get three or four SDRs to feed one through eight. And so, and it's much more cost effective in my opinion. No, it's not more cost effective. Yeah, more cost effective. <laughs> I don't want to derail the conversation. Richard, I'll give you an economics lesson uh, offline after the, uh, the show. I think you want to hear it, but Alexine, what do you think? Well, so here's my thought. I think that the SDR, I, I, I want to be straightforward. I don't think the SDR function is like disappear. Like, I don't think that's going to dissipate in 2021. And like, suddenly we just have all these people floating around. What I see happening is, you know, this move back to the full cycle AEs in conjunction with SDRs that are maybe starting to do more like entry level sale, like more transactional or some of the like warmer, like the inbound, like really warm stuff and getting starting to cut their teeth versus just having them you know, schedule meetings, because I think, I mean, you both know this, that transition, I have not seen it go well. I've been at multiple startups here in Chicago. I've yet to see that transition really go well, unfortunately, for any SDR moving to AE, because they have no, like, true sales training or sales process, that's, and then you have to learn discovery. Issue. 
That's not an yeah, SDR's fault for not knowing how to sell. That's the manager for not knowing how to teach them how to sell. That's absolutely. Bullshit. Yeah, absolutely. So and I think until that part's fixed, but that's where I that's where I say I think that SDR function turning into like getting set their hands on some of these earlier deals and starting to do things that way. I can see that happening for sure. Um, let, but it's, it's hard to say. Let's pull out of this for a second. Is this <laughs> the first time that you've ramped remotely before? Yes. Yeah. And it was not easy. Yeah. So let's talk, let's talk about that a little, a little bit. I mean, what, it, what has been your experience ramping remotely and what would be your advice to others who are going through it or about to go through it? Yeah, I think, you know, the toughest part for me is I'm, I'm like a phones gal. So I'm used to being on a sales floor and hearing other people on the phones and hearing how they combat objections. Um, you know, Displayer provided me with a lot of really good learning, like proactive kind of learning resources. And we did have trainings. We had some other things set up. But the hardest part for me was not being able to hear other people's talk tracks, because although I have all this information, you know, you can only learn so much on your own from reading. I'm like a very experiential learner. Um, so I mean, my advice is obviously take advantage of whatever the company has for you. I would definitely, you know, proactively schedule times, which is what I did. I scheduled times with like some of our customer success people so I could get to know them and what our clients are actually doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I also had an additional challenge because I didn't come from within the industry, which is, you, you know, nice Scott, no, that's like a separate conversation is industry only hires. But that was like another level of like, hey, I need to learn this company, but then I also need to learn this industry on top of that. And so my way of going about this is the same way I've gone about any new job. I, I hit the phones. And I, again, I know that that's not for everyone. Um, and I got beat up a little bit at the beginning and I, you know, you know, I got bruised a little, you know, it's just tough. You get like objections. You don't know what you're talking about, but I started to hear similarities in the types of objections I was getting. I had a basic kind of cold call pitch down that I knew and I could run with and it started to get more comfortable really fast. So I don't know that that works for everyone. And I know everybody's industry is different, but that for me, in, in tandem with getting to know people internally and using whatever resources they provided, just jumping in was the only way I could learn. Was there, was there any particular like um, strategy you had to get to know people in the, in the company and to take advantage of the resources? Like, did you make a point to, you know, have one meeting a day with somebody that was a colleague or in a different department or in the same role, or did it just like, naturally kind of happen. Yeah. So two things. One displayer set up for me, which I think was really cool. So they actually have you create a project. Um, I accidentally got like the project that was for someone that was more advanced than me and I ended up completing it, but I was like really struggling with it. And then I found out later I was supposed to have like an easier version. But um but what you do with this project is you have to partner with people from different teams internally. So you have to partner with someone from CS, someone from engineering, someone from design to complete this project. So that socialized me with like, you know, five key members of the team that I'm obviously still meeting with leadership for different learning sessions. But then the other thing I did was leverage Slack. Um, you know, Slack for me has always been the easiest way to get to know people. And the easiest way for me to get in with them is to use like random channel, like whatever that channel is where people just post random, you know, nonsense. I'll just kind of start to interact with people there. And then that sort of- This is the best use of the random channel I've ever heard, by the way. The random <laughs> channel on Slack <laughs> is the very first one that I unsubscribe from all the time. That's the, one of the only ones I keep. That's so funny. Um, 
Yeah, it's because there are a lot of people that don't normally like socialize in that channel, but those are like integral people for me being successful, like engineering folks, product folks, the people that are on the front side of like learning what our product actually does and can describe it to me in a way that I understand. So like, that's a great channel for me. I'm like, here's this whatever dog video I saw over the weekend, hilarious. And then when I go to reach out to them on Slack, it's not so cold. Like it's like a warm yeah. intro for me. That's smart. It's uh, by, by far better than any, anybody else explaining. I have Richard, do you stick around in the random Slack channel? If you're, if you're in any of those, I, I have gotten out. I've never been smart enough like Alex Dean has to, to find a use case. No, I'm too, I'm too old for Slack. Um, <laughs> I think that, that my, I've already got so many social channels that I'm doing stuff. Like I'm part of Martin sales pros where I do stuff a ton. Um, and I do a little bit on Slack. Um, and I do a lot on sales hacker. So at some point I can't yeah. be everywhere. Right. Like, and, and I think, and I also think for what I do, you know, where I'm, I, Again, I don't know how the Slack stuff works, but I'm such an advice giver, right? Mm -hmm. What ends up happening is I write these really long diatribes on, on modern sales posts that people like, and then that becomes my blog post or my LinkedIn post mm -hmm. so I can repurpose the content. And I'm sure I could do it on Slack, but I don't think Slack wants those longer stories. I think it's meant to be sort of quick. So, um, so, so anyway, so oh. it, it could be a, a lack of me just make putting the right effort in. It's a really good use case that, that you mentioned, Alexine, and we were talking a little bit offline about how this is kind of a new thing for you to like put in all of this. I don't want to make it seem like you haven't been putting in effort, but like all this extra effort, you're doing all these things that you'd never done before. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and kind of like taking your craft and your learning and development and relationship building to that next level. Um, so what, is there a reason like, is this a COVID driven thing? Like you need more sense of community or, you know, what was the thought process behind that? Yeah, I think, so I've considered myself like fairly active on LinkedIn, only LinkedIn um, for the last like three to four years. I put a lot of effort in. I started interacting with people. I started messaging people, but like communities are brand new to this year. And I think it was COVID driven. Like I think there, I don't know that it was like I needed to talk to people necessarily. I almost felt like I have an opportunity to connect with people that I normally would never have an opportunity. Like Scott, like a lot of people wouldn't have direct uh, like access to you through a Slack channel where I can just like beep you, you know, you, whatever. Yeah. And then you shoot a message right back. So I think for me, it was like, shame on me if I don't take advantage of this opportunity when people are at home and they do have like time where they're sitting around. Um, so this is, um, it's been interesting because I'm doing uh, Revenue Collective, uh, Rev Genius. Um, I'm teaching for Aspireship Victory Lap Rework on the side. Then Thursday Night Sales is basically my new Thursday night. Um, now I, d I just joined Scott's. Uh, he, he did not pay me to say this. I just joined his Patreon community. And so I'm like involved with that now too. And now we're doing Tequila Tuesday. So like my calendar for sure has like become saturated with these events. Um, but it's been really incredible to actually connect with salespeople because I think what I'm realizing is these topics that I've been struggling with for the last couple of years, I'll throw one in a question section on Slack on whatever. And then all of a sudden, like 15 other people are saying like, oh, I'm doing the same thing. And here was my workaround or here was my strategy. So it's actually talking to people who are on the front lines like me 
and then sussing through like how do we actually solve this issue whereas before it was like maybe i would see something floating on linkedin that kind of related and then i try to like mold that into a solution for me so it's been it's been really interesting but it's it is time heavy for sure do you have, do you have a, any hacks to like sift through the noise a little bit or i mean as you were listing off all the things you're participating in richard and i were going I know Richard was doing this. Like, like fuck, holy shit. <laughs> yeah, do like, you? Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, mean, I, I know what I do, but <laughs> like you were reading off all these things and I'm like, Jesus, yeah. she does as many things as me. So yeah. but like, what is working for you? And, and the, the important part of that question I think is you're in all these places, you ask relevant questions, you get a bunch of feedback, but you get feedback from a lot of different sources how do you figure out which piece of feedback to pay attention to and then implement? Yeah, um, so two-parter there. Yeah, I think, so first and foremost, like what, so I do mute certain channels. So like, um, I love Rev Genius, but like there's certain channels in there that don't apply to me, like the memes channel. I love it once a month, so I mute that channel. But then I have like the Women of Rev Genius channel, the Women of Revenue Collective channel, like those are super important to me. So there's certain channels that will trigger me if I see like, you know, if I see the alerts for those, I will go in and, you know, usually pay more attention to. Um, the other thing I do is uh, anytime, this is, I don't know that this is scalable, but anytime people message me on LinkedIn and I don't have time to respond like that second or people are talking about a topic, I'll either screenshot stuff if it's like a topic that resonates with me and then I'll look through them at the end of the night. Or I actually keep a note section on my phone for people that I need to respond to on LinkedIn and I'll chop through that before bed too. That's interesting. I've never heard of this uh, screenshotting like topics or whatever and things to come back to. Have you ever heard of that, Richard? No, it's interesting. I, I yeah. love Alexine and how you're doing all this stuff. I guess, how many hours a week are you working? Like, what do you, I mean, and it's not, it's not a criticism. It's, no. it's like, this could just be your passion and that's okay. Yeah, I think, um, so like work-wise, I'm at least doing, I mean, I'm usually doing like nine plus hour. I mean, sometimes I have evening demos, so it could be like nine, 10 hours for the new job. I think that's pretty consistent. As far as outside of work, I mean, additional probably three to four hours. There's some of that LinkedIn time that like overlaps with my existing work where I'm like prospecting, doing stuff, but the app, it's either like lunchtime or after work. I've gotten really religious about keeping, cause LinkedIn is, we know this is like a black hole and you just like fall into it. So it's either lunchtime or like, I try to keep it like after work if I can. But then I, and I try to also like when I have these networking events, I mean, those are like at least uh, TNS is like four hours a week. Cause I stay on the late night crew with Amy. So that's like a whole other that's black like hole for bar. me. That's, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the beauty of what Scott and, and, uh, Amy have built over there is that it's, it is your, Hey, let's go hang out at a bar Thursday night and just talk to people. And it's beautiful, right? It's a beautiful yeah. thing. It is, it's educational, but it's also fun and just relaxing and there's no pretentiousness and, you know, they mm -hmm. purposely don't record it because they want people to have honest and open dialogue. So I, I love that. Mm -hmm. What well, yeah, um, the fight club rules. Yeah. And with one, one other thing for TNS too, like I'll just say again, Scott, not being me for this, but, I just think, you know, for me, the idea, if you would have told me like six months ago, you're going to be up till 1am on a zoom call with uh, 60 other salespeople and someone's going to cry and someone's going to like snort beer out of their nose laughing so hard. Like I would have called you crazy. So I think that's kind of like that COVID effect is I, 
like this ability to connect with these people and actually genuinely want to stay up until 1am. And then I have, you know, Scott and Amy answering these questions that I really have needed answers to because I'm going to, you know, a few people in my network and I always kind of hear the same type of answers. Um, but then I go to Scott and Amy and it's very different. And I also like one thing I really love is that Scott and Amy conflict on a lot of answers too. And I like that because to your earlier question, that's what when I'm trying to take pieces of information, I'm looking for pieces of myself in those people. So like Scott, he's like a little bit more impatient, like Scott's a little bit more my style in certain ways. And like, we both like want to snap through things. And then Amy, yeah, she's more you, in relationship. You can, you, Alexine, you can use what is, more. Wait, 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 what is Scott's style? I want to hear that. Scott knew I was going there. So what is Scott's style? In his own words, like impatient, and I'm impatient too. And he's, you know, he wants to get to the yes or no, and he gets excited about these like quicker things and quick wins. And that's how I am. And then Amy's a little bit more, you know, slow moving relationship. She likes the long haul. And there's pieces of me that like that too. But that's where like, when you both answer things, I'm like, yes, this one's like an Amy one that I'm going to take. And then I'm like, nope, this one's a Scott one I'm going to take. So that's these communities, like, and even just general information on LinkedIn that's where I think about like, if someone's like, Oh, I built, you know, I spent like three years sending this person gifts um, to get an initial meeting. Like that story's great. Like that's, that's not me. Like I'm probably not going to do that for three years, unfortunately. So I think I just look for pieces of myself in some of those answers and then try to tie it to what makes the most sense for me. Where did, I'm going to pull you way out of this. Where yeah. did the ball come from? Like what were you like as a child? Were you this, hyper competitive were you always driven like <laughs> your parents sit back and go yep this is exactly how she was yeah i was I, I was like a little monster but no i mean i was so i'll i'll start so they always say like salespeople did sports growing up and i have a first degree black belt in taekwondo so i competed in taekwondo for over 10 years and my main my main area of that was sparring i loved sparring i loved fighting my dad, I think, wanted a son, but will never admit it. And I'm the only child, so he had no choice. So he would like go to my sparring meets with me and like cheer me on. And so I think there was like definitely a competitive streak with, I mean, sparring's like a very, like you have four minutes and you're going face to face. And if you break someone's nose and it was in the right, like it still counts as a point. I mean, it's like a very intense sport. So, um, which I did unfortunately once, but, um, but I think there's that. And then there's also, um, I grew up in my mom's restaurant, um, and I talk about this a lot on the podcast, but she owns a restaurant, which at the time was very rare for like a female to own like a restaurant catering business with zero outside funding, and she wouldn't let my dad touch anything. Um, so she's very headstrong, and so I grew up like going to caterings, going to wine tastings, working at a restaurant, and we used to have kind of like a game between us where she would get inventory, like boxes, they're usually like GM, salsas, whatever. And if I could sell through a box of that, she would like buy me like a Beanie Baby. So I always joke that that like from age seven, that was like my first commission plan was just like Beanie Babies. And I would like fly through salsa or whatever. I would just sit at the cash register and like be hustling salsas to people. I'm like, this is the best peach salsa you've ever tasted. You can't imagine it on a tortilla chip. And they're like, who the hell is this seven-year-old? Like get out of my face. And then they buy it. So I think it's just one of those where I had a weird kind of upbringing. Was, was sales a natural <laughs> thing you chose sales or did you sort of fall into it? Cause I, we, we talked to a lot of people where people are not necessarily driven to go into sales, mm -hmm. you know, it just sort of, well, you know, this didn't work out or that didn't work out. And then all of a sudden I discovered how much I liked it. 
Yeah. Well, I don't, I didn't know that you could go into sales. Like when I was in college, they just started launching. I was at Purdue and they had just started launching like sales and it was like sales and marketing and they blended all together, which we know they're not like the same, like, so there was like one sales and marketing kind of section. So I didn't even know really that sales existed. So I left college planning to go into retail buying because I thought that, that was going to be, I wanted to work for a really glamorous, like Neiman Marcus was my first mission. And I wanted to travel the world and go buy fabrics in Milan and do all this stuff. So they actually had a buying program and you had to work in the Neiman Marcus on Michigan Avenue for six months and sell at the store. And in order to qualify for that, because they wanted people to kind of cut their teeth and actually show that they're motivated to join this program. So I did that. And I was having, you know, like 10, $20,000 weeks. And my manager at the time was supposed to write my recommendation. And she was like, I'm happy to do this, but there's something else here. And I want to tell you what buying is really like. And she's like, you're going to be in a stock room for the next 10 years. And you're probably not going to make any money. And, you know, she told me all this stuff. And I was like, oh my God, my whole life plan is shattered. She's like, but I've never seen someone come in and have like $20,000 of selling cashmere sweaters. So like, why don't we try to, she's like, I'm just telling you, I think you should look and look into this. And that's when I found, you know, I started interviewing and I found my first tech sales role and I had the least experience. I mean, Scott knows this. I had the least experience on the entire team. There were, I was in a class of like 10 to 15 sales reps. And it was basically like, we knew like 30% were just going to fail immediately. But, um, and I became their top performer in less than a year. And I just, I just was so natural once I was in it. But before that point, it wasn't natural because I didn't know that you could do this. And it was like a respectable career. Got oh, you're <laughs> Your future has got to be something to do with like black belt sales. <laughs> their whole like your next like business lined up for you, right? Well, what, what did you... What do you take away from all that time and energy and effort and discipline required to get a black belt and bring and cross over into the sales career? Um, I could think of a bunch of things in my head probably, but I'd love to hear from you. You're the first person that I know, at least I think, that is like a black belt in Taekwondo and, uh, and is, in, is in sales. Yeah. Yeah, I'll say before this too, but part of the reason I had to get the black belt was that was my dad's requirement before I could get my driver's license. So there's like a little bit of a <laughs> You had footnote. to get the black belt before you could get a driver's license? I was not. He was like, you, if you want to drive around, then you better be able wow. to defend yourself. And that was our deal. So I stuck to it. But, um, but I think there's a ton. Like, I think it's like a weird lesson. I don't even know if it's applicable. But for me with Taekwondo, like everything is built off of these fundamentals. Like, um, you have these forms that are built from all these basic kicks and punches and stuff. And you have um, sparring, which is then an offset of those initial kicks and punches, but you're putting it into like a different variation and you have to learn to compete against someone directly. So I think for me, like the biggest thing and I, with sales, especially it's like this mindset of back to basics. And like the second I started at this company, I was like, vroom, back to basics. It doesn't matter if I hit president's club before. It doesn't matter that I was top performer. Um, all of that is washed away. I'm at, I'm back to the start and I have to fill a pipeline and I know how to fill pipeline and that's by setting meetings. So I'm just back to square one. And I feel like that's that a lot of that comes from Taekwondo because every time you have to learn a new form, you start back to basics. Like what's the first step in the form? And these are 40, you know, different steps put together. So I think it's just 
for me, that's the big thing. And I usually have a sign on my desk. I don't have anything on my desk yet at the new office, but I'll always keep a sign that says back to basics. So it reminds me to stay humble too. And like keep prospecting and not get, I just don't ever want to get to that point where I'm one of those AEs that we've talked about where I like can't prospect or I'm too lazy or I'm doing that. It's just a reminder for me. She doesn't want to be ninth or 10th on the top 10 leaderboard, Richard. Exactly my point. I want to be there. Right. <laughs> or I'll yeah. take myself out. Yeah. Like if I'm, yeah, then it's not a good fit for me either. Then what am I, you know, just that sucks. So. <laughs> what, what are some of the things I know you, you do a lot of stuff. We've, we've got to slowly start to move towards, towards wrapping this up, but mm -hmm. let's talk about women in sales. We know you're very active in that. Um, just share a little bit, if you will, about any part of that you want to cover. I, I don't have a specific yeah. area, but I want to support you in that communication. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll take it back all the way back. So when I first started in sales, you know, it's still not a lot of women on the team, but back then, definitely not a lot of women on the team. And what happened was we typically got pit, pit against each other as women. You know, there would only be like two of us in a team of like 20 guys. And for some reason, like leadership, like loved it. And it worked to some extent because I would bust my butt trying to beat whoever the other girl was. Um, but there was such this like ugly rivalry. And it wasn't like some of it was like great because it produced numbers, but some of it was so unhealthy. And so for me, it's just over the years, I've really and I wasn't good at the beginning. Like I really fed into that because, you know, many times like I had leaders that were like, don't you want to be the top girl? Don't you want to be the number one girl? And then finally there was like this turning point where I was like, no, I really don't. Because to your point, if we're on that team of 10, we're nine and 10 and all these guys just beat us. So it doesn't even matter. So I think that I had this turning point, like definitely in the last like four years where I was like, why are we competing against each other? We're already in the minority on these teams. We already have more than enough that's up against us. Like, why don't we try to collaborate? And like, we're probably struggling with the same insecurities and negative self-talk and imposter syndrome. So why don't we like work together? Um, and some of these, so really the last few years was the first time where I joined sales teams where women were actually like supportive of each other. And we would like actually genuinely congratulate each other when we closed a deal, but it took like a long time to get there. So I think my passion comes from kind of like this old version of myself where I was really competitive and we were like beating each other up when really we needed to focus on getting to number one and it didn't matter about the other stuff. So I, I think for me, my goal is I want women come, I want more women to come into this industry to begin with, but then I also want us to help lift like now I'm climbing the ladder. So rather than like kicking out all the rungs underneath me and screwing someone else over, like, why don't I like lift a hand and help them up and then they can help the next person. And then maybe we'll get to a point where our sales teams where I'm not only one of two female reps on every single team I've been on. So I think that's part of like my owning my backstory and how I haven't been the best version of a female salesperson and then really like stepping into this new version of this that's more collaborative. So how do you do that now? So what do you do now to support the women in sales community? Because I know there are definitely different communities, but for those who are interested in you and they like your style mm -hmm. and they like your approach, where could, where would you direct them? Yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm starting to get more active with the Women of Revenue Collective. So that's kind of my newest group. Um, women of Rev Genius, I'm super active in. I feel like there's like 15 of us women who are like really constantly active in there and share, you know, and a lot of times what I do is just start like a topic, like, hey, is anybody else 
struggling with this this week? Did anybody else have like negative self-talk because of this? And then we just start these like really awesome conversations from there, sometimes with like 30, 40 responses in Slack. Um, and then outside of that, I'm doing like a lot of these teaching, like I'm teaching sales 101 classes. And my goal in that teaching isn't like, it, I want to like convey what I'm actually trying to teach. Like I want to actually teach sales 101 or social selling or whatever. But on top of that, for those, those are typically mostly men in those classes. So I want those few women to see like an example, like you don't have to, you can be like gutsy and like strong and like, you know, own your own attitude and be good. And um, so I, so that's part of like why I like teaching too, is getting to connect. And then what happens from there is a lot of those women stay in touch with me over the years. And as they start to climb the ranks and their SDR AE, they'll send me questions or we'll schedule calls. So I'm not really doing like, I don't have like focused mentees because I don't want to like overcommit myself and my time is already crazy right now. I already don't sleep more than six hours, but I try to create more of like this loose mentee web where there's like a group of probably like 15 women consistently that are sending me questions on LinkedIn and via text and whatever, or they're trying to move companies and how can I help them? And so that's kind of turned into this little bubble where I kind of help where I can, but I don't overcommit myself. So how do you, some, give, what advice do you give to men about women in sales? What, what can you teach us? Because I know we come in with our own biases. I know we mm -hmm. like to say that we treat everybody equally and fairly. I'm pretty sure that whether some in, some is intentional, other is unintentional. What advice can you give us in general terms to, to be stronger advocates, better supportive, more supportive, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll preface this by saying uh, most of my mentors have actually been male and not female. So that's, it's in, an interesting piece there. And I think that's part of the reason, the reason like negotiations. Yeah. There's not, enough of them. There's not enough female leaders to your point. Exactly. There was no choice. Yeah. So I didn't really have a choice, but that, so I think for my advice for men is, you know, um, especially if you're in sales and you're in like leadership or you're in these senior roles, like, don't be afraid to approach newer women in the org or newer women on the team or SDRs and offer to kind of take them under your wing. I mean, you don't have to like go, like none of us need to be babied in any companies, but don't think that just because you're male, you can't have female mentees, vice versa. Like there's a lot of men that come to me as a mentor figure too. So it does, it goes both ways. But then on top of that, I would say, you know, um, try as much as you can, like unconscious bias exists. We're all going to have biases try to allow yourself to like let those down if you can especially for people that are newer to the team let them prove their worth and if they you know let them own their own sales process in their own way like i'm a very outgoing like ferocious salesperson and i'm not like as much on the it's hard for me to be more like relationshipy, so that's where i actually struggle it's kind of the opposite of the gender bias that's associated with me so i think just allow women on your team to own own their own voice and then on top of that, like if you do see stuff, especially during like team meetings and stuff, and you see like someone consistently being talked over, like be that person that steps in and just says like, hey, I don't think Alexine finished her last thought. Can she, you know, can we go back to that for a second? And I, I do the same for male colleagues when they get talked over, like it doesn't matter to me, but um, I think just help us make this community better and like be in it with us. And I think we have a lot of like great men right now that have really stepped up to the plate and have been awesome allies. And I'm loving that. I love seeing it. So I think just continuing that and just letting, letting it naturally happen. Let us just be part of the team. Let us all be friends. <laughs>
That's awesome. I, I appreciate the feedback, and I, and I hope a lot of people take it to heart because I agree. You know, at, at some point, we have to take the initiative to support um, and not just say, hey, you know, Alexine, you need to speak up more. It's like, no, we need to help that for a lot of people. Although, I don't think I'd need to say that to you. Um, <laughs> That's the opposite. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Alexine, we, we, we definitely got to wrap it up here. Um, any, any question you want to ask us or advice you'd like to ask us while you, while you do have us here? Maybe, yeah, I love this. Um, what would be your, you know, one piece of advice? I'm one quarter into the new role. Um, what's your biggest piece of advice to really continue to hit the ground running? Well, I feel like you've already hit the ground running um, and you've, you've done what you need to do. I think um, this is always the question I always ask, and I think it's, I think it's important is, you know, going to your leadership and say, look, I'm always going to focus on hitting the number. But what else can I do to help you accomplish your goals, right? It sends that team message aspect. It means that you know you're going to you're going to have their back as much as they're going to have yours. Um, if you're not hitting goal, like I don't know that you should be going and doing that. Like, but you're hitting goal, um, and I think it's a big piece that you can do, and it allows you to maybe take on that side project if you want to move into a leadership role or maybe it helps solidify you as just someone they're never going to want to let go. Even if you're like, look, I don't want to get into management. I've done it. I'm happy being a, a, you know, IC, but I think that's probably my best advice is ask them what else you can do to help them. And they're going to turn around and ask to help you. I love that. I, I would tell you to just keep doing what's working, but what people usually do after their first successful quarter at a new company is they, they change what was working or they try to take on too much or, or they try to do it a, a way that there's less effort involved or something like that. And then you get these people who come out of the gate strong and then they crash. And then as a sales leader, you're left to like clean up the mess. You're like, okay, well, which person are you? Are you the person who struggled or are you the person who came out of the gate quickly? And you talked about it yourself at the beginning. It's all about getting back to the basics. So my advice for you, to be honest with you, is don't change a thing. Just keep doing what's working for you. All the things you did in the first quarter, just keep doing all of those and you should be fine. And that's really how you stand out and set yourself apart is through this consistent ex excellence. Um, so that's what, what I would say. better advice. Whose advice do you like better? Oh, my God. <laughs> um, I'm not... I, I, refuse to answer. They were both great in their own merit. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. I, Scott knows I love to poke at him. So it's, it's fun. Uh, Alexine, thank you so much for, for joining us um, on this. I know LinkedIn sounds like might be the easiest way for people to get a hold of you. Correct. Yep. She's shaking her head. Yes. For, for those who are listening. Um, <laughs> but thank you so much. And, and again, a quick shout out to our sponsors of gong.io and lead 411 for, for letting us do this. Uh, Max, Alexine, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you.